For September 10th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 532, The Dragon Bookmark. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're talking about the things that interest us. And sometimes the things that interest us expand, extend beyond the latest movie that uh, hits the theaters, beyond the latest blockbuster, the latest Jack Ryan TV show on Amazon, uh, the latest and greatest that comes across. Sometimes we just like to spend... A little time alone with our thoughts, but I'm never alone on this podcast because I always have Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. I'm glad to be here as a companion and as a uh, a crucible. Both yeah. of those things. Absolutely, ditto. It's a it's a role. It's a role that we fulfill for one another. Pete, this is going to be one of our storied two handers stories, in that we tell stories about it because our friend Mark Lee is on a solitary vision quest in uh, uh, in the wilderness. Yes, that's right. Yes. So he is uh, he has gone out into the parks, into the national park system, which, of course, we talked about to celebrate its 100th anniversary and is sending us back many pictures of visual and sensory delights from uh, the lands of conservation. So we wish him all the best and don't jump in any geysers, you know, have a grand old time and come back to us safe. So again, that, the sound of like plugging up a geyser with your body just so that you're <laughs> shot into the air. When it erupts and you go, woohoo, I guess he would also be scalded, though. So that's a bad idea. And you should not do that, Mark, if you hear this. But Mark won't hear this because uh, he spent a lot of his trip um, off the grid, spent it uh, without access to the Internet, without his phone. Uh, and when he he wrote back, he got on the overthinking at writer's slack and he wrote, uh, I spent four days with almost no Internet in the wilderness. Ask me anything. Um and uh, and Pete, you asked him something. You asked him the question, question, do you spend less time alone with your thoughts than you used to? And Jordan uh, jumped in, replied, very, very much less. Uh, he's, he listens to podcasts when he's walking, social media feeds when he's standing still. Um, and... Uh, even when uh, even when he's watching TV, he said, I, I used to be that I'd just spend the commercial break thinking about what I saw, whereas these days I'd either fast forward through it or uh, doodle around on his phone. Um, you you broke in. I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth, Pete. I'm just reading the Slack, tra- the chat transcript to uh, get our initial um, initial argument out on the table. You said you used to get a lot of your ideas while running and also used to run without headphones, but now you're listening to headphones. And we talked about sort of empty time and, uh, and digital, um, digital time. I've heard Pete, I've heard tell that, uh, people even, people even check their phone when they go to the bathroom at work. I, that, that just sounds gross to me, but, uh, it's like El Dorado. It's a legend that you've heard about somewhere, Yeah, somewhere. Someone is using their phone in the bathroom at work. You don't know who you, you, you wouldn't certainly do it yourself. Right. But, uh, somebody out there is doing it. So that's so. why Mark, that's why Mark is not here, but it kind of led us to this exchange on our chat in 
in our chat room. And uh, it, it led us to think that maybe we should talk about solitude a little bit. Like, like here's what I don't want, Pete. Let me tell you what I don't want. Okay? Can I sure. tell you what I don't want? Yeah, of course. I, I, I don't want to, to, to do an hour where we just poop on, on technology and phones and things mm-hmm. and things like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that would be the easiest way to go down. Like, oh, we're, we're all slaves to the, to the devices that we carry around in our pockets and this tiny little, tiny little window when there's a great, big, wide, beautiful world in front of us and we're, you know, straining our necks and getting repetitive stress injuries just hunched over this little thing, our shoulders up to our ears, our spines curved downward in an unnatural way, our eyes glazed over, a tiny fleck of drool forming in the corner of our mouth as we, like rats intermittently rewarded with a cocaine pellet, press the lever again and again and again in a, in a stupor, in a daze. That's what we are. Like, yeah. I want, I, I don't want to say that on the show. Right. There's a certain hypocrisy in saying that in a podcast where the reason <laughs> we're doing this topic is that the Jack Ryan Stop. show on Amazon Stop. isn't fun or interesting enough to do a podcast about. <laughs> it's very formulaic. It's super <laughs> by the numbers. It's like, uh, you're a loose cannon, right? Like, it, no one actually says that, but they may as well. Um, or uh, it not... Um, not uh ryan the the uh the supervisor character who is played by james earl jones in the films and is played by wendell pierce complete waste of fantastic actor wendell pierce in the jack ryan tv show um all right so so what do you i mean you spend less time alone with your thoughts i i guess what, what what do you mean by that? And what does it mean to be alone? When are you alone with your thoughts and when you're not alone with your thoughts? I don't know. Let's let's start there. Sure. So for me, the model of being alone with your thoughts is the Wordsworth Coleridge, go walk in the woods, be in nature, romantic kind of association with imagination, emotion, and ideas. This idea that you go out somewhere away from stimul from the human structure, right? And you go out into nature, and the inspiration of nature is going to cause you to come up with and experience thoughts that you don't experience in human society, right? That's sort of like for me the basic, you know, tenth grade assumption for what is happening when you're alone with your thoughts. And so for me, that would be out running. That, you know, then, you know, I used to, as I said, I used to run without headphones and and my mind would wander. Right. And it would wander both because it didn't have other things to attend to, but also uh, in order as as a sort of form of coping with its situation. Right. Is that like uh, it's not necessarily like even the walks when you hear about the poets going for walks in the hills. I think we've talked about this, too. These were not strolls that they were going on. These were what we would refer to probably as hikes or even like trail runs, right? Like they were going for like a lot of miles, like at a good clip. And, and these, these were, uh, these, these occasions of being out in nature, they, there's a strenuousness to it. And I, and I kind of, one of the sort of questions to call to it is that there's the being alone in repose. And then there's the sort of being alone, where where like you're in repose and the mind is wandering because it has the freedom to wander versus you're in a lo- you're alone in the engagement of some sort of solitary activity that that provides you with some measure of stimulus but not a, a kind of highly cognitive stimulus and then the mind wanders to sort of react to its circumstance right uh, and and I kind of wonder 
as I experience this more, and I think as we all sort of experience more the kind of shrinking of the sphere of alone time, and I think it also there's something to do with getting older in there. But I, I wonder whether the times that musing and thinking that would be occasioned by solitude that I had previously associated with uh, repose and not having to do anything might actually the whole time have been more associated with what was actively happening while I was alone and what that was causing me to sort of do and why why is that causing me to imagine why why is it that when I would go out for a seven mile run I'm coming up with you know Dragon Ball theories right like why why is my brain doing that as opposed to just sort of reciting a grocery list or trying to blank out everything or whatever why am I like very vividly imagining running the New York Marathon across the Brooklyn Bridge with Will Ferrell like in my head right like why is that like I remember a very specific run on the treadmill where this like stuck thought stuck with me for like 45 minutes like why does the mind wander to these things like what's this association I don't know Matt do you when I'm talking about like the solitude stuff in terms of like active or passive or repose or sort of adjustments uh, you get what I'm pick- you're picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I want to add in a couple more dimensions to our chart because sure. I think there there are this is a kind of a, a multi dimensional set of axes here. Um, what because when well yes uh, I think that this whole discourse has been ruined by the sort of productivity or self improvement discourse right that the, I, wish I, I wish I had a podcast on that. yeah I know right like this, well maybe it's just because it's on my mind from our discussion about about that last week but yes. a lot of a lot of the uh, when you kind of read about people extolling the virtues of alone time or unstructured time or like how your best ideas come to you in the shower or when you're washing dishes or things like this, it's always placed in service of it's all it's, it's formulated as an instrumental good, right? This is a thing that is good because it makes you more productive because it, it, it kind of moves forward these other uh, aims that you have and like the, the, and gets you into the, what I call the bait and switch, uh, or maybe a double standard, but the the sort of lie of of productivity, which is that what are you producing and why, right, and for whom? Um, that like uh, you know that for wandering and even sort of wandering alone in the woods and like or not the woods, I guess the the Lake District, right, in England <laughs> or like the uh, in in Northwest England or like the Scottish Highlands or something like that. You know, going on these these walks in these rugged hilly, hilly terrains. You know, or I guess I don't know, less than mountains, more than hills, right? Like uh, um, doing these ex- extraordinarily strenuous nature walks. Um, and sort of the communion with nature uh, or the the sort of communion with your thoughts, right? Like the the idea that the the motion, the strenuousness, right, and the kind of the repetition, the repetitive quality of the activity triggers something in in you triggers a, a kind of mental mode, a kind of diffuse sort of thinking um, where the mind makes connections that it wouldn't necessarily make otherwise. But like if you're doing it, I mean, if you're doing it for poetry, isn't that also, you know, kind of viewing it as an instrumental good, right? Because the ultimate the ultimate thing is that you want you want some poems, you know, um, 
is the, is there a sense in which oh and and sorry one one more kind of complicating factor i talked last week about meditating and i meditate every day for you know 20 minutes or half an hour half an hour and i like i strive for half an hour sometimes i look at my watch and i can only do 20 minutes but that's the uh uh that's the minimum and and um in that in the sort of the kind of teaching that i'm trying to follow um being alone with your thoughts is not the point. In fact, your thoughts are uh, illusory. Your thoughts are, are, you know, conceived, theorized to be illusory and temporary. <coughs> part of the part of the cycle of striving of uh, of you know attraction and repulsion that you're actually trying to trying to get out of, and you're meant to sort of notice thinking and practice a kind of non attachment to it, a sort of non judgmental non attachment. It's not bad. It's not like bad thinking mind you know uh that would not be particularly meditative but a uh, a non-judgmental non-attachment where you observe yourself thinking and say oh that's thinking those are thoughts not even like i am thinking because what is the i right as just as just as you practice non-attachment you're you're moving towards a state of non-self and so that 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 is not though i spend um you know, half an hour every day alone and in solitude with, uh, as little stimulus as I can manage, um, living next to an interstate highway, uh, the 10, as we call it in Los Angeles, where we call freeway, where we give freeways the, uh, the, um, the article, the, I, even though I'm that, that's not being alone with my thoughts. That's not sort of mind wandering. There's an aspect of focus or an, not exactly focus, but there's an aspect of discipline to, of practice to it. Right. So, so these are all, this is, these are all thoughts that I have <laughs> as, I, <laughs> as I wander through, as I sort of walk in my, my, my podcasting treadmill here with you. And none of them, none of them actually answer None of them actually answer your question. Honestly, the only repose I get these days is when I it, I would probably fall asleep. It would probably be napping, right? Like uh, I sat down to watch some Netflix on the couch this afternoon, and I ended up napping. Um, it's uh, just because uh, you know the the being a first world um, knowledge worker, you end up chronic. The the, the condition of being almost embarrassingly soft, you know, and, and not, uh, not physically engaged at all by the, the day-to-day work that I do is that I'm always exhausted and underslept. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, uh, I spend a lot of time napping. I also think that there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, like as sort of the depression was the watchword of, uh, was the watchword of the nineties, um, Anxiety is the watchword of our uh, era 20 years on and that like uh, that the idea of thoughts, repetitive thoughts, intrusive thoughts, that these things are that these things are conceived to be bad um, or at least unhelpful, uh, unpleasant and uh, lead to to bad, you know, negative externalities or sort of um, various kinds of, of internal suffering. So what it, like what are, what then when we say what is this thing that we're sort of nostalgic for when we say. You know, when we say being alone with our thoughts and, and, and why there is, there is a weird resistance that we have to it because I, I definitely notice, um, you know, I definitely notice 
the twinge that makes me reach. I keep my phone in my back pocket, my, my, you know, right butt pocket and my jeans. And like, I am so used to kind of reaching for that. Uh, and when I can, and meditation helps with this, actually, when I can sort of get a little perspective on the stimulus that leads to that response, there's in, ge- in general, there's some kind of uncomfortability, right? Like there's some kind of uh, internal problem that is being solved by sort of reaching for the device or by kind of diverting your, by diverting one's attention, right? And that that, um, that, that uh, cycle you know, gets repeated until it becomes a, a habitual pattern. You don't even notice it. You don't even notice it happening. You don't even notice the uncomfortable thought or the uncomfortable sensation. Um, so that that like the, the being with your thoughts is good, right? Uh, these kids today and their their uh, phones, right? Like uh, us all sitting slack jawed over our devices. Um, this is bad. You know, wasn't it nice when we were all walking in the woods, but walking in the woods wasn't walking in the woods and being alone. And, you know, that is not uh, thinking in repose. And what is so threatening anyway about the idea of being alone with your thoughts that, uh, you know, you might be tempted to to uh, go for your phone in your right butt pocket with one hand while you're, oh, let's say, standing at the urinal or something like that. Um, anyway, Pete, you want to throw uh, more? You want to throw more? More thoughts on this pile without actually let's, let's pick one and explore it a little bit. <laughs> okay. So if you I particularly say so. I particularly connected with your story of the nap. <laughs> and <laughs> I also had a nap today. And I, I think there's real there's really something here. So today I've had a it's been a pretty, you know, it's been a pretty busy time. You know, obviously there's a lot going on. Uh that's not really a secret to anybody uh, in a lot of different ways in people's lives and such. Uh but so today I decided that I have told myself for the last few weekends that I was going to read more of the book that I have been reading, right? which uh, I've been stalled on for some time, uh, at least in part because I, I, I bought myself a very fancy bookmark in order to mark the pages in my book. And the bookmark has a tassel on it, and the tassel kept getting caught on things and get pulling the bookmark out of my book. Oh, no. and so I kept losing my place. <laughs> So, all right. What, um, what, what, uh, two, two quick questions before you go yep. on a, what book and B what constitutes a fancy bookmark other than the tassel? Oh man. So the book, and I think it's the same book I was reading when I last saw you, which is the dragon bone chair by Tad Williams. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast. I know Jordan's read this series, but this is a serious, a, a fantasy series from the eighties wherein once you begin to read it, you realize almost immediately that it is an extremely direct source for Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> like like it has, uh, like the cover boasts that George R. R. Martin uh, was inspired to write Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire series uh, by reading this book. And you start reading huh. it and you're like, oh yeah, this is like really, 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 really similar with like lots of characters that kind of have the same thing going on and and different things about the world building in particular that are similar. I would, I would say, I think what's generally attributed to it is that it's like a, a uh, middling, not particularly outstanding, I think people believe, but very influential uh, work of kind of uh, unreliable narration with a lot of dramatic irony in a fantasy series which attempts to give more verisimilitude to character perspective. Right. So it's got a in this case, it's got a kid and the kid doesn't has no idea what's going on around him. And uh, the world ha- clearly has a whole bunch of effed up things that are happening but you as the reader can intuit from reading it sort of what's going on but the character has no idea 
and uh, and that's kind of and he continues to engage with events in that respect. So that's kind of the, the what I would give is the general gist of it. It's also similarly considered with post-colonialism and kind of uh, kind of like Cold War uh, mentalities about history in the past. And sort of rejecting Cold War mentalities about history in the past. But anyway, so well, like- I'll put a link in the show notes so that uh, other people can be lulled to sleep by this book if they uh, exactly if they want. And uh, second question: What? Uh, tell me about your bookmark. Ooh, I got I bought a bookmark with a dragon on it because <laughs> <laughs> I never had one of them, and I felt like I wanted to go full nerd for this experience. So uh, maybe nerd geek, whatever, go have an argument about that in the comments. But <laughs> but I, uh, it's got a dragon on it. It's yes. got kind of like combination of Celtic and Nordic kind of ornamentation around it, right? Are those runes? Are they knots? Is it both? I don't know. Uh, and it has a ruler on it too, which is great in case I need to measure anything with my dragon. Dragon, uh, is one <laughs> dragon long, and and it had it had a a strand of sort of goldish golden twine with a little sort of bell shaped thing at the end, which didn't actually ring, but it kind of had a tassel and a little metal bell, uh, and that was what would catch on things and get pulled out. And so my fiance, of course who uh, surprises me all the time by caring about my uh, comfort and happiness in basic ways, which is something that I generally don't care about, but she sure does. Uh, removed the tassel from the bookmark after the third time that I complained that it had, I'd lost my place uh, in the book. But um, so this is a little, little like uh, normally I read books on my nook because I was a Barnes & Noble senior bookseller back in the day, and oh, I saw yeah. a certain amount of loyalty to that. Uh, and also because I like the e-ink and, and whatnot, but, uh, and the Nook is pretty solid. But at any rate, the point is that I sat down to read my book, and I got about you know maybe 20 pages in, and then I fell asleep. And I slept for two solid hours because I was exhausted. And, uh, and I think that this is not something I want to just gloss over as, as something that's going on. Because when I woke up, when my fiancé came home, and I, you know, I woke up. It's like, oh wow, I've been asleep for a while. In order to kind of get myself back into the groove, so that I could do things like work on projects I wanted to work on this weekend, and deal with you know finance stuff, and and work out at the, in the garage gym and stuff. Uh, I played like a game of Starcraft, right? I like went into. Uh, my little little what we call our early late room where Sarah goes when it's early and I go when it's late. And uh, and I played some Starcraft and that really like got me jazzed up. And it's not like the book was unstimulating. The book was exciting. It's fun. I like the book. But uh, any book is not going to be stimulating in the same way as a, you know, a hundred APM, if I'm lucky, real time strategy game. You know, you're clicking around. There's lights flashing. There's music playing and screaming and all sorts of stuff is going on. It's just there's a different level of interaction and stimulus, I think, that's going on with that sort of engagement than there is with the book. Yeah. And I guess what my takeaway from it is, is like. Because this is something that Mark said, too, when he was talking about going to the National Park, which was that being alone with your thoughts is not necessarily a positive prospect. It can be kind of scary. And um, and that the thing that happened when I engaged with the medium that didn't really demand my brain's kind of biological operation to a full degree in the way that StarCraft does, that it demanded my mind, but not really my whole brain, right? To try to be like, I'm clicking and I'm looking and I'm multitasking and doing all this stuff. When I was just reading the book, the other things that are going on in my mind, they reach forward, right? They, they sort of surge. And it's a slow, soft surge in the event where the thing that happens is a nap, 
where it's like, oh, by the way, you're really tired. I've been trying to tell you that you're really tired. This is a state of being that you're currently in. And you've been finding ways to not feel or acknowledge that you're really tired. And uh, and you know what? Those ways are not in action right now. And as such, you're going to feel really tired. And uh, I, I kind of chuckled to myself when you said this was a first world problem because it's not like people in the third world don't take naps. In fact, I would even say that the developing world in general is very fond of naps. I think it's kind of necessary in a lot of places where they don't have air conditioning because it gets very hot in the afternoon, right? It's like... Uh, uh, and again, they don't have air conditioning in general, but like if you're near the equator and you don't have air conditioning, it is probably likely that your culture involves some sort of napping, right? Like there are at least breaks, like periodic breaks. Um, and the fact that we don't do that is as much a testament to the control that we exert over our physical environment as to like our culture and, and various like degrees of work, I would think. Uh, right. I, I mean, that's just my thinking about it. Um, and like the climate has an effect, but but that's neither here nor there. The point being that like, what is your neutral state like? Your neutral state is not neutral. When you're not on your phone, what's your brain doing? And and when you're saying, I don't want this to be a, a polemic against technology, great. So then what's the other what's who's the other dance partner in this thing? Right. Like like we look at a brain and a phone and we know we kind of have opinions about what the phone is doing. But what about what the brain is doing? And I think the meditation you're talking about sounds like a really important thing to do. Uh, but it also, as you sort of mentioned, it has this externality associated with it. It exists for sort of it's in a it's in a walled garden. And and I guess when we're talking about going out into nature, if that's the metaphor, we kind of step outside the walled garden of kind of curated mental states into the scary place where the mind drifts or which really means like if you need something, your brain, which exists in order to inform you of such things and help you acquire them, like informs you of it. Like, oh, you really need this thing. You know, oh, man, it turns out that you're neck deep in water. You should do something about it. Right. Like that kind of stuff. Like there's a bear. Uh, get off your phone. There's a bear. That kind of thing. Um, I mean, I don't know. Does this speak to you at all? Like like what is your when you're not meditating like and you're not and and, and I kind of wonder my hypothesis here is that the urge to reach for the phone has a lot to do with the uh, the neutrals, the quote unquote neutral state of the mind. And and that that's the sort of addiction is that you're 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 able to not feel needs. It's like a way of satisfying needs because you don't feel the need when you're stimulating yourself with like screen stuff. Right. Like and, and to sort of put the technology of it aside, it's saying, OK, you know, what is it that would exist if if the phone weren't there? And I mean, for a lot of us, it would be more sleep. Right. Um, and I, certainly for me, I've had terrible sleep for the past 15 years uh -huh. and uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> nearly 40 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's coming up. Right. So it's like at the, at the very, I do make some sort of demarcation around like the sort of, uh, maybe what 2004 or so. I mean, I slept terribly in college. Then I had like a brief respite where I think I slept. Okay. And then from there on out, it was just terrible sleep straight through. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, this what is what is your can you think of what your neutral mental state is like in those moments where you seek out a, a kind of um, simulacrum of of not aloneness? Because that's what we're really looking for. When you're with your phone, you're still alone. Right. You're just you just have create you're just engaging with this simulacrum that is giving you the impression that you're not alone or that is sort of shouting out your solitude so that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I th- I think it's gosh, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing that that I might pull on one string that I might pull on a little bit is to say that that sort of meditation be, is a walled garden and out, outdoors is the scary place. I I think I sort of challenge anyone to uh, spend enough time alone on the cushion and uh, you realize that your own mind is kind of the scary place. Uh, and and I, I mean that in a non pejorative way. Like it is. Are a, you saying that you don't need a bookmark to find a dragon? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, no, there, there'll be dra- There are a lot of dark places on that, on that map. You'll be um, it's, it's kind of a common place among meditation teachers that, that uh, early, like early meditators, which I very much still am. However many years it's been like half, doesn't is it's just like a drop in the bucket uh in terms of the kind of the profundity that the practice can can bring to you is um that uh you'll become convinced like if you spend enough time with your own mind you'll become convinced that you're kind of locked in here with a crazy person and that that like uh that that is a not uncommon um that is a not uncommon uh phenomenon and and uh not uncommon to actually become so agitated just sitting alone trying to focus on your breath that you're tempted to or you may actually even just kind of like leap off of the cushion because you're so wired up you can't uh you can't stand it anymore that that is a uh not an uncommon thing until you kind of learn to tolerate to sort of tolerate those states and i, I would say that there's something about like taking walks outside going for a a hike that that something in the kind of the repetitive there's a not exactly a lulling, but there is a sort of there is a kind of present moment consciousness that can that can kind of emerge that's similar to uh, to a meditative state. Um, you know, same with uh, yeah, same with um, uh, washing the dishes or same with taking a shower. Like there's something about like repetitive physical actions like like washing or, you know, like walking that can kind of induce this uh can sort of induce this state in the mind i'm really taken with your idea that like what the what the phone offers is what the technology offers is the idea that you're not alone um i'm not sure i've ever talked about this on the podcast but i listen to podcasts a lot and i very often listen to them um when i'm going to sleep uh i'll put on a you know a i don't like i don't like audiobooks at that time because i don't want to like miss something or you know have to go back and listen to what i listened to already um but i i listen to podcasts when i go to when i go to sleep and i'll put like a 10 or 15 minute sleep timer um on the podcast app and just uh you know just listen to some uh aimless talking much like this podcast and 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 my preferred for genre of podcast is a lot more is a lot less like public radio, uh, which is kind of the dominant mode these days, I suppose, by uh, by ad dollars and by number of downloads. But uh, my my preferred mode is. Um, like the overthinking at podcast is a sort of roundtable discussion on a particular topic with a, a you know a stable panel and then and then maybe occasionally a guest uh, and that's that's why ten years ago when I started that that was the kind of the dominant mode of podcasting ten years ago when we started this one and uh, that's why it is the way it is and and you know it's what I like and it's the sort of it is the uh, and we've had emails from people from listeners to overthinking it um, you know I say I've sort of 
got this like branding statement, which is like your smart, funny friends from the internet. But that comes from that's not something I, I generated out of whole cloth. It's so that that I that I spun like a silkworm, you know, like the like the long tassel to a dragon bookmark. No, I we got this from listening to uh, to from reading emails to. Um, to listeners who said that that you know uh in very positive ways in their life you know you sort of develop relationships with the overthinking of podcasters that they did and that like this had been uh for a lot of people this had been a real um a real positive thing and that uh even in a couple of them it had gotten them through some uh some difficult times or even in a couple of cases some dire times and and you know i can't express how honored i am by that that this little thing that we do uh you know because we like it and we get a kick out of talking to each other actually actually helps people and i think in that i mean i think in that dynamic um is the is the idea that like this doing this makes us all a little less alone because in some meaningful and true way, uh, some real way we can kind of reach out across the, we can reach out across the distance. We can reach out across the divide and find some kind of communion with one another. It's not the same as the, the communion you find with your face to face friends, um, you know, with, with, or even with the, you know, the, the person in the coffee shop who hands you, uh, uh, who hands you the the cup of coffee right like but it is some it is some kind of communion now uh, i play i play a little game where you slide numerical tiles around on a board and they 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 add up it's called threes uh it's sort of like 2048 was a was a sort of open source version of it um that came that came out later, and that that is not uh, a form of communion. But I find that I I do it a lot, and I do it to kind of manage. I do it to sort of manage mental states a little bit, and it's not, uh, you know. So so I think that like. I think that, like, actually, it's one thing I'm kind of developing here as I'm talking to you is, uh, is a sense of sort of getting. Let's get real. Um, about let's get real about how difficult the kind of the the mental environment in which we find ourselves this sort of you know technologically enabled um, you know I don't know I don't know what to call it I don't know what noun to use it the situation right uh, with the phones and the and the distractions and the whatnot and the the knowledge worker jobs and the you know relentless anxiety and the uh, whatever let's get real with ourselves about how difficult this actually is um and and sort of not moralize it as you know i don't know we're a bunch of soft first world namby pamby uh you know knowledge workers who have never done a hard day's work in our life like that that's not helpful <laughs> uh and um and it also it's not helpful in the sense that like beating up on yourself will not will not solve the problem will not like do a bit of, do anyone any good um morally honestly even if it feels like it it will and that's why you do it uh and it also won't it won't lead to to greater understanding so a lot of a lot of what i read about this and like you know it is a irony i'm i'm not uh you know insensible 
um, of the irony that like actually w- one of the main topics at least that I find in this sort of distracted state in this sort of uh, situation of of uh, evading non solitude by by the sort of simulacrum of togetherness is that why is that like um, <laughs> how badly adapted our brains are. <laughs> you know to the the information environment that we find ourselves in and that you do um <laughs> that you do uh you just you distract yourself <laughs> with uh, thoughts about with with um, you know medium articles right about how it's bad to distract yourself in this manner i'm not uh insensible to that to that irony but like let's let's at least acknowledge that you know there seems to be a real difficulty here we seem to be badly adapted to to our situation and sort of understanding the dynamics of that of of how that works seems to me to be a, a prerequisite to making any kind of normative claims about like what we should or shouldn't be doing um with our minds and with our with our uh, attention yeah. right and this is this is just edging up on what you said which is that like sometimes you need a nap yeah that's true i i would even point out or at least look to Two ideas. You've already mentioned one of them, which is uh, tolerance, right? And then the other idea that comes to mind for me is resilience. And that these two things are classically framed for us as in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And even I would even say often framed for us in a very gender normative way as in conflict with each other, right? In that uh, men have a lot of resilience, but no tolerance and women have a lot of tolerance, but no resilience is the sort of like old school sexist way of looking at it. The idea being that like tolerance is the quality of being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that statement is false, by the way. Like, oh, yeah, P, it's entirely P, false. yeah, P thinks it's false. I think it's false, but that is the yeah. stereotypical position for sure. That's probably this. It's a stereotypical position and a kind of way to understand how these you might, or at least for me, these ideas, it's taken some time to figure out what these ideas really mean in the context of my life in much the same way as it's taken some time to recognize that being even though when I was a little kid, being alone with nothing to do was really boring. As I've grown older, that's not really the reality anymore, right? Because the situation vis-a-vis like the thoughts in your head and the things that are happening to you and also your own sort of power over your situation is just fundamentally different. So, you know, the idea that when you're a kid, your parents kind of manifest for you your needs and whether they meet your needs or not is like a really important thing for you psychologically. And you don't really have a whole ton of responsibility for your own needs, even kids who aren't particularly well cared for, uh, they still have that psychological thing going on where they're looking to some sort of external factor to fulfill these needs for them, right? And, and as you get older and you go through transitions and you come to take your own responsibility for your needs. And, and uh, so it's different. So like sitting after school with nothing to do when you're a kid, it's like, this is boring. But if you have nothing to do when you're an adult, you're like, I can sleep. This is great. right? Or like, you know, yeah. Ooh, I can do this thing. I can do that thing. Or I could just like somewhere in the middle, I could just let my mind wander and think about stuff. But then you do things like confront death and and being you know, alone with yourself and those after you do that it gets a lot harder. But the point being that like tolerance, right? And you correct me if if I'm getting these definitions off and it's not a formal definition, it's not a psychology class, but it's the, my experience is that tolerance is the ability to feel 
an emotion that there is an occasion to feel in your situation, that, that, that there's some reason why you would feel a certain feeling, whether it's a good reason or not, is immaterial, doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it's a reason, and there's something that's prompting you to feel this, and your tolerance is your ability to actually experience the sensation of this feeling, as opposed to use some sort of defense mechanism to shove it off so that you don't feel it. Right. Um, and, and intolerance is important because, I mean, a good example would be what, like you watch a movie and there's a movie, the movie is really sad and somebody dies in the movie and you're like, whatever, this is stupid and turn it off. That might show that you have like low tolerance for those sorts of feelings of grief because you don't want to experience them. Right. And your your psychology might be. I don't have any feelings of grief, Pete. It's just a stupid movie. That's a stupid movie. It's just I don't want I don't want to watch that. That's just dumb. It's not re- it's dumb. And I think it's a normal. I mean, people you can't just tolerate everything because that's just crazy. Right. Like then you're then you're a monk on the top of the mountain. But even the monks have to move to the top of the mountain because if they try to do it in the city, they'd go nuts. Uh, you can't. There has to be boundaries of some kind. Uh, but but you do have a degree, a greater or lesser degree to which you can experience feelings. Uh, and, and it's a sort of intermediate. There's a step between the thing that prompts the feeling and the thing that feels the feeling. Yeah. And, and, and we're, the way this, we're, yeah. for what for what it's worth, we're talking about not like social tolerance in the sense of like different viewpoints. We're talking about the ability to tolerate uh, psychological states. Yeah, exactly. So like another example might be that you are, you know, you're watching, you know, uh, what? Fat, yeah, I want to make an example with Fast and the Furious because that's always the best, right? Yeah. Uh, it was like you're watching a Fast and the Furious movie and, you know, there's like a, a Dom jumps over the highway and saves Letty. And you you find and feel the impulse to feel like a sort of melodramatic surge at that kind of experience. But then some part of you is like, no, nah, this is stupid. Right. Like, I don't I'm not interested. Right. Yeah. And, and that might be there's something self-protective there. It might be an idea of yourself. It might be some other thing that's going on in your life where you're like, I don't want to spend my emotional time on stupid things. Right. And so that's like that's not necessarily a sin of intolerance. Right. But that's like an example of like you're shoving off a feeling that you could be feeling. I mean, a practical example would be something like, uh, you know, you're up you're up late at night. You're out dancing and you're uh, you're incredibly tired. And and you feel sick, but you you just jam it out and you just need to keep partying and you're like, I'm going to party all night. And you do this. And, and part of why you're doing it is to avoid whatever it is that's making you feel bad. Right. And, and that because you can't tolerate it. You couldn't actually like sit with how sick or sad or tired you are right now. And so you're seeking out a stimulation to kind of take it away from you. Yep. Right. So that would be one dimension. And then the other dimension is resilience, which I would think of as if you do have a feeling that is happening to you, uh, can you can you still do stuff, right? How debilitating is it for you to have a feeling? Uh, and I mean, an example to this would be like, if you're if you're if you're in pain, can you keep going? Like, can you keep like, uh, you know, if you're running a marathon and you're experiencing a lot of pain and a lot of self doubt and a lot of anguish, uh, can you keep running? And, and these are sort of like, uh, or like, you know, even even stuff like uh, if you're at work. Right. And um, and there's like a fire. Right. There's a fire alarm. Can you like uh, keep your calm and evacuate? Right. Sure. Uh, as, as opposed to like panic. Right. Or ignore it. And and I think that there's this idea that is related to dismantling gender norms where it's like uh, these things are in opposition to each other. 
um, where where like it's like, well, people want these where it's like we have to identify how society conditions people not to feel. And then that's gender gendered and bad versus like we need to identify how society also conditions people like to that they have to keep going no matter what happens. And it's also gendered and bad. And it's like, well, both of these things have good and bad aspects in your life. Right. Like to be tolerant of, of feelings and to be resilient of feelings are both useful and or bad and not even externality. Like they're part of your experience as a person. Right. And that's like related to all the stuff that's going on uh, in your in your in your in your mind and in your experience of, of everything that's happening to you. Uh, and of course, you know, anything wacky with your biochemistry, you know, either natural or self-induced or other induced or whatever, like someone hit you with a blow dart or something. I don't know. Um, just the idea being that like a lot of stuff can affect your mental state. And so when I think about stuff like the effect of lots of stimulus uh, and and how like the effect of lots of stimulus in a sort of pervasive way on our way of living and our culture, because it's a pop culture podcast, right? And it was originally – it originally bothers me and it goes back to like the dragon bookmark of like, well, you, you might not even feel like you have time or capacity to imagine anymore. Right. Like you might feel like you don't have occasions. I mean, certainly I feel that way. One of the reasons overthinking it doesn't have a lot of new articles is that and this is sort of what our conjectures here is that we are all so hyper stimulated in our lives that we don't have those moments of solitude to sit down and have ideas and that this has actually been damaged by whatever's going on with this stimulus, which I think is related to these ideas of can you tolerate what's happening to you and can you be resilient in the face of what's happening to you? Uh, and to what degree and whether it's good or bad, right? It's it's all about the dragon bookmark, man. It's like, um, do you still have that part with you to do that? And and I guess, I mean, there's so much happening in the country and the world with people responding to pain uh, in ways that are endemically difficult, right? And and dangerous and sad um, and and scary, uh, and, and that. Well, is there something about the way that people are experiencing this pain? Is it being transmitted to them in a different way or are they experiencing it in a different way because some sort of other aspect of their life has changed, whether it's that they've become more sedentary or it's that they are constantly bombarded by images of things that upset them, right? Like we're all kind of living in the middle of a clockwork orange montage. But again, I don't want to get on a polemic about technology, but it's well, like – Well, I think uh, it's difficult. I mean the technology the technology exists, but I think it is – it's definitely true that in this sort of attention economy, right, the the – you really need that you need that direct you need that sort of direct line in order to break out from the noise you need to sort of gratify some sort of or or stimulate or disturb some sort of like very basic thing and so our uh our you know media our attention environment tends to become a lot more strident and a lot more uh clockwork orangey right a lot more um a lot stronger stimulating i'm trying to think a lot more lurid i think is the word Mm. that 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 i mean and that that is like um that that's not surprising yeah and i just i find it all very fascinating and i mean there's obviously questions here about like how to sort of structure your like like about willpower and choice making and oh well you could you could choose to be different than how you are which is true you know we've talked about we talked about this last week that we talked about all the sort of positive and negative aspects of the degree of control that we have over our lives and and improving ourselves and all that stuff but to a degree it's also it's part of the landscape that is affecting us and maybe part of what to do is to sort of notice it 
I guess that would be part of your meditation, I guess, right, would be. And by the way, I've, I think I've said this on the podcast before. Shavasana, for me, is, has been historically terrifying, right? Like the, uh, the, like the period at the end of the yoga class where you have to lie in total silence on your back. It's just like, oh, man. Yeah, but most, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of people fall asleep, Pete. Don't, don't feel – just take a nap. I, I, you know, I, I wish, I wish I could, uh, certainly, especially the first you know year or so that I took yoga classes, it, it really freaked me out because again, it's also not all stuff on in media that makes us scared and sad. It's stuff that's happening in life too, that makes us scared and sad. And, and, you know, there's every age has its ways of coping with these things that might be good or bad. You know, there was, Everybody loves the good old – everybody loves to talk about prohibition, but nobody talks about the corn whiskey epidemic, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. Um, T- fill me in. So my understanding – and of course, if we have any hardcore historians that want to counter this, by all means, weigh in in the comments. But my understanding is that while we frame this narrative in contemporary culture about the era in the United States where we banned alcohol, the prohibition era, which is pretty crazy, right? Um, that this era we banned alcohol and the traditional narrative is that it was done for moral reasons and then there was a huge uptick in crime and uh, because of the crime, and of course people didn't really stop drinking all that much, but because of the crime, we eventually realized that prohibition was stupid and we stopped doing it and that the extended war on drugs in the United States is kind of much the same thing. But one dynamic that I've read about a couple times, which doesn't necessarily belie this narrative, but adds a dimension to it, is that this whole thing was presaged by the industrialization of corn distilleries. Hmm. And that um, in the United States, of course, you know, corn, uh, maize, as it were, right, is a major crop that's grown in great quantity. And that and one of the defining facts of the past, you know, 150 years of human experience has been the American corn crop looking for a place to enter a human body. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's, and it's like it just keeps finding different ways of doing this. And a lot of giant social and health trends are related to ways in which this powerful, powerful market force has made itself felt all over the world as corn finds its way into animals that finds its way into people or it finds its way into people directly or it finds its way into M&Ms that finds its way into people and so on and so forth. Well, one of the first ways this happened was making whiskey is that they would make whiskey from corn, you know, very sort of young whiskey, uh, very sharp. Uh, and uh, and I and from what I've read, this was something that was like you'd have it at the workplace, right? Like it was everywhere. It was super cheap and, and available uh, widely. And that people's consumption of corn whiskey was crazy, like in the 1910s, right? Like the consumption of corn whiskey in the United States was nuts. Uh Um, And that a lot of the pressure that eventually crashed over into the prohibition movement was because of this huge surge in the industrial production of whiskey. Um, And and I I, I mean, this feels credible to me. And and I think even if it even if anybody else wants to weigh in on a sort of different aspect of this, but the idea that you would like take a whiskey break in much the same way people today take a coffee break. Um, And that this is another example, right? of a stimulus that is related, I think, to people having to cope with the realities of their lives, right? Because it's not like people were drinking for no reason, right? Like, yes, there's a factor. There's like, there's the cell phone, which you can blame. There's like the corn whiskey thing for that you can blame. But also, like, if you're at work and there's free whiskey, right? Like, and you're going to drink the whiskey, there's probably a reason that you're yeah, doing also, it. Also, right? like, the, like, the era of, or leading up to prohibition, like, like, prohib- uh, not prohibition <laughs> produced the wasteland, no. Um, but that 
era produced the wasteland, right? Like there was a, a yeah. set of of terrifying social dislocations, right? Uh, post World War One or during and post World War One that uh, were if as terrifying or more terrifying than than the ones that we face now. You know, so yeah. that so that like, yeah, there was uh this was what was this what was was what was available, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so we're always looking for ways to see keep surviving, I guess. And I think that another when you were talking about things that are sort of like meditation. Yeah. Uh, that one thing that came to mind for me, which is another sort of casualty, I think, of modern living to an extent is like listening to the radio. Uh-huh. Um, and, and and I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Obviously, people still listen to music and a lot of people listen to music. But the sort of shared experience of listening to new songs on the radio uh, seems to me to be pretty much dead. Right. And just in general, like not even on the radio. It's not like it moved to the Internet and everybody is sitting down and listening. It's like it's it's that there's very music is now you can listen to any music you want at any time. And there's a lot of stuff that's competing for what you want to listen to. But the idea of there being kind of like a cruising down the highway, listening to top 40 kind of experience uh, that that doesn't really exist anymore for a variety of economic, cultural and technological reasons. Yeah. And um, I don't necessarily want to bemoan it because it's not like it was all good. But but there was it. There's an aspect of it that feels meditative and an experience of music that feels meditative. I think one thing that that really struck me recently was thinking about how um, I just feel like so much if you compare young people today and their sort of uh, feelings and expressions of political protest versus like a generation ago, there's just so much less music involved in it. Yeah, like there's not there's not good protest songs. Right. Like, yes, there's music and there's there's rap songs and hip hop music and and all sorts of different kinds of music that kind of expresses feelings. But there, as far as I understand it, there is not really the sort of communal experience of big songs in the same way or to the same dimension. It seems much diminished uh, in, in how people are interacting with things in their life that are kind of in changing or required to be changing. And it's just interesting, right, that like. Is there something about experiencing it through music that helps you both that helps you tolerate it? Right. Like you listen to a song. It gives you a reason to feel a feeling. And then you can kind of like take that into yourself. Right. And, yeah, and there's really also sort of I mean, there's on it. there's also, I think, an anthropological argument that the sort of origin of, of song, the origin of music is in shared work. Right. And so there's a collectivism that uh, because it coordinates the rhythm, uh, the rhythm coordinates activity and the melody and, and lyrics cue activity. Right. And so right. that like um there's a there's a collective a collectivist aspect to experiencing music together, right? So I guess what I'm saying is that looking as we're sort of reflecting now, uh, is as we now all live in the world that Steve Jobs made and then abandoned, right? <laughs> and it's like without understood without full ever ever having to fully comprehend the consequences of what he wrought, right? When when Steve Jobs pulled his. Uh, Dennis Nedry <laughs> and checked out, which what is, hath, I guess, a cruel what, way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> what hath Steve wrought, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is, I know, it's obviously not all him, but it's kind of funny to think of it that way, that like that uh, that there was this big transformative change and then the people who made it kind of moved on to other things uh, and the life goes on and, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> moved, on, <laughs> moved on to other things like the next world. Right? Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, the 2.0, as it were. Uh, but no, just that... Uh, 
<laughs> that that um, we've been in it long enough that I think that if you take and certainly I've been feeling this and I think it was really refreshing to hear the other people in overthinking it feel about this is that like you can now start to really recognize what about your life has changed and particularly what kind of culturally about your life has changed because we've definitely talked about like health and productivity and self-actualization and all this other interesting stuff but there's a cultural dimension to this too which is like oh you know like I don't really watch the things I want to watch or listen to the things I want to listen to or I don't take time to myself and because I don't I don't like make up stories right and I liked to do that um and it just sort of is an interesting occasion to think like you know you you know you yes the world around us is different and we're now surrounded by corn whiskey but uh but you know that let's let's validate that feeling of like I want to have that dragon bookmark right like I, I want to like I want to seek it out and whether it's like a midlife crisis thing where I'm seeking out something from my youth or or somebody who's younger would be also kind of yearning for something that they don't fully understand uh, uh, finding it in some sort of solitude might solitude might be the thing that you're missing but the reason that you might be missing it might be that like the pain that's in the solitude waiting for you is too much and you need to develop a capacity for tolerance and resilience to be able to kind of live with it and recognize that things like imagining things and even making a poetry in the context of solitude doesn't necessarily come from having nothing to do as much as from having nothing to feel but yourself. Right. Um, as, as, and in all of its many plentitudes, I guess that's the sort of Walt Whitman solution to a William Wordsworth problem, I suppose, which I guess is what Walt Whitman is, is a solution to a William Wordsworth problem. <laughs> um, yeah, I I want to kind of drop one last um one last thought in as we kind of near the as we near the end of our discussion and the idea of of tolerance and resilience I mean tolerance being the idea to kind of like the the uh, ability to withstand to sort of accept uh, a bad stimulus um without necessarily trying to change it uh, or mm-hmm. something that could could cause you you know could cause you distress in one way or another and resilience being the way being the uh, the practice of getting distressed but kind of returning to the undistressed psychological state as quickly as possible um, right both of those things require uh, good boundaries right like both of those things require and and this is going to sound dumb um, when I say it, it's going to sound so obvious, but it's not so obvious. Uh, both of those things require that you have a firm grasp on what is you and what is not you. Mm. Right. And it's, it's the case, I think in a lot of our lives that we actually don't have a firm grasp on what is us and what is not us. Like who can live, uh, with some, who can, you know, uh, cohabitate with an intimate partner. And if they're really pissed off about something, right. How, like it's, you know, it's almost superhuman to be able to kind of not to have, uh, acceptance and resilience with that, right. Like to be able to accept that and not let it get you down as well mm. though though we can sort of say that like though the the healthy response might be empathy right might be support you know might be help of some kind or another that like it's actually an unhealthy response to say um you know uh pete and i are living together pete's angry so i'm angry also you know yeah. or pete's sad so i'm sad also right like and that like how how often and that's just an obvious 
obvious example, right? That like sort of the 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 people with whom you're very close um, emotionally, right? Like uh, affect your affect. Uh, your own psychological state. I think that there are a lot more subtle ways, right, in which we internalize uh, internalize things. And and there's like probably not for the end of a podcast, but I think there are if you, you know if you're into um, psychodynamic psychology, I think there are a lot of defense defense psychological defenses that operate by um kind of declarifying uh by fuzzying up the uh the boundaries um between you and other people or you and and sort of the state the state of the world and so like one one aspect of sort of building solitude and building kind of a lack of stimulus uh, a, a non-stimulated time into your life is that it it connects you to what is actually you you know mm-hmm. it like connects you to uh your own experience and your own um your own sort of consciousness right as opposed to that of that of other people. And I, I say this completely without recourse to like Buddhist ideas of sort of non-self and like your, your self, your feelings and your thoughts being, being illusions. Let's not even go, let's, you know, that's the 201 class. Let's not, that's the, you know, that's the other podcast. Let's not go there. But just in, in, in the sense of the kind of the normal experience of, of yourself, um, making sure you know where the bright line around you is, is a practice that can, that can be, sort of useful don't you think yeah i mean one of the most common complaints that you hear is people complaining that this isn't about you this is about me but you just said that it's about me oh it's about me then it's about you right there's like we're surrounded by presumptions of that are based on kind of poor boundaries right yeah and it's like yeah it's it's like you can't and it's not it's not like it's just an intellectual error it's it's like a psychological state of being for like somebody says something and you hear it and you associate it with yourself because there's a defense mechanism where you don't really separate yourself from the other stuff around you. And there's all sorts of other subtle mechanisms. It's, it's again, it's the 201. We don't have to get into it. I'm not even confident that I could speak to it with enough certainty to be really accurate about it. But definitely like I mean, one of the things if we want to really talk about like art and kind of look and feel and culture uh the the transition from myspace to facebook is one of where you have your own page right to one where there is a wall where everybody is looking the same right and uh and and this idea that everything that you see is framed to look somewhat similar to other stuff that you see and it's also all the stuff that's about you is framed to look similar to the stuff that's about other people and i do wonder if one of the big kind of like narrativizations, meta-narrativizations that happens on these platforms is the narrativization that all that of like a sort of joycy and blurring of identity. Because certainly the algorithm doesn't care that you're you. Right. <laughs> and so like and this isn't a polemic against uh, technology, you know, it achieves the goal that the technology is trying to achieve, which is to maximize your time on the platform so that can sell more ads on it. But but even more than that, you know, it's like 
there are models and thoughts and ways of doing this that do create kind of a boundary between yourself and other people. And I think that people search for cultural experiences that do that to sometimes it's healthy and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's destructive. And and a lot of that depends on how you feel about The Last Jedi. But like, let's not get into that right now. <laughs> Just the whole idea that uh, <laughs> that that a lot of a lot of this. You If you didn't think this was a pop culture podcast today. It is right. Like a, this enga- engages with the pop culture in a ton of ways, uh, and we just don't have time to get into all of it uh, right now. I think. No, it's time oh, for well, us. Save some for later. Yeah, it's time for us to uh, to re- return to our solitude, and mm-hmm. uh, you know leave the leave the simulacrum of conversation, though not a simulacrum for us, um, a simulacrum for the listeners who I'm uh, very grateful uh, for each and every one, and I'm grateful for you, Pete, for uh, having this conversation. Hey, you know what? Let's make this conversation not a simulacrum. Um, we didn't do it today or tonight or whenever you're listening to this on, on your podcast. Throw your podcast player away. <laughs> Throw it away. Free yourself from the man. <laughs> um, but wait, just keep us. Yeah. Keep us as the old. Throw away everything else about technology that's inauthentic in your life, but keep us. Right. Because <laughs> we're real. We're legit. We don't even edit that much. We actually care. <laughs> yeah, you heard all of the. Yeah, like you heard the cold that I have tonight. Like. <laughs> Um, that's that's that, a real cold. That's not CGI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we've we've enjoyed reading a few more comments on the podcast and and responding to them, and we've enjoyed uh, seeing them in the comments section. So head to head to the website, um, head to the show notes. Let's uh, uh, let's get a discussion going there, and we can talk about uh, some of these things in future episodes of the Overthinking It podcast. The next one will come next week. Till then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture. To a level of scrutiny, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Hey, Matt. Yeah, Pete. Don't, don't leave me, Matt. I don't. I don't want to be alone with myself. I know. No, none, none of us does. Let's. We'll just keep this podcast going forever. Just keep, okay. How can? What can we do to pass the time? Oh, I know. Of man's first disobedience, and the <laughs> fruit of that forbidden tree. A A A A one dry cleaning. <laughs> Three six six five 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 one two one two A A A A A A two Roto rooting and plumbing repair.